Support for Charlotte Readers Podcast is provided by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence at cmlibrary.org. Welcome to the April edition of Charlotte Readers Podcast, where authors give voice to the written words. A proud member of the Queen City Podcast Network and the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. In this episode 289, we visit with Jennifer Dassel, author of Art Curious, Stories of the Unexpected, Slightly Odd, and Strangely Wonderful in Art History. Art Curious is a colorful look at the world of art history, revealing some of the strangest, funniest, and most fascinating stories behind the world's great artists and masterpieces. We're all familiar with the works of Claude Monet, thanks in no small part to the ubiquitous reproductions of his water lilies on umbrellas, handbags, scarves, and dorm room posters. But did you also know that Monet and his cohort were trailblazing rebels whose works were originally deemed unbelievably ugly and vulgar? While you probably know the tale of Vincent Van Gogh's suicide, you may not be aware that there's plenty of compelling evidence that the artist didn't die by his own hand, but was accidentally killed or even murdered. Or how about the fact that one of Andy Warhol's most enduring legacies involves Caroline Kennedy's moldy birthday cake and a collection of toenail clippings? Publishers Weekly says in its star review, Dassel reveals in this entertaining survey the weird, wacky, and unbelievable backstories of some of the world's greatest artists and most famous works of art. Both artificiados and novices will find something to appreciate in this offbeat and informative outing. Before we jump into the uninterrupted interview today, I'd like to thank you for spending some of your valuable time with us. We very much appreciate it, uh, and thank you for being here. I'm your host, Landis Wade. I'm a recovering trial lawyer turned author, turned podcaster of books and stories, and love interviewing authors about their books and sharing that uh, with you, the listener. A few quick things to know about the podcast. Uh, you can listen to the podcast wherever you like to get your podcast on all major podcast platforms, but you can also get more at charlottereaderspodcast.com. At our website there, you can get show notes on each episode where we share information about uh, the authors who appear on the show. There's a guest list that shows all the authors with links to their episodes. There is a community blog where authors who have appeared on the show or who've submitted to the podcast can share their wisdom and knowledge about writing and book recommendations. And then we have a community vlog where we do some Facebook Live interviews. Uh, if you like video, check that out. And then there's the book report you can sign up for uh, at the podcast website. That's where we share on a monthly basis information about the podcast, what's happening, what's coming. And uh, hey, we won't spam you. That takes way too much time. And if you like uh, audiobooks, check out Libro.fm. We have an affiliation with them because they support independent bookstores. And when you sign up, if you use the promo code Charlotte Reader, you're going to get a free audiobook. On the Landis Wade front, check out LandisWade.com. That's where you can find out more about uh, me and my writing. I also have a blog there where I, I write about uh, what I've learned uh, from authors and learned about the writing process. It's called Wade Scripts. And we have a newsletter you can sign up for there, uh, the Landis Wade Author Newsletter. And shameless plug here, I have a novel out uh, as of April 5th. It is called Deadly Declarations. It is a novel about a trio of unlikely retirees who set out to solve the mystery of the supposed Mecklenburg Declaration of Independence. 
That is for the Don't Die Trying. I'd love to have you check that out. You can find out more at LandisWay.com and wherever books are sold. And now, let's get to the episode. Jennifer, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Yeah, congratulations on the book. <laughs> Thank you. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, and the podcast. Congratulations on that, too. Thank you. I've been doing the Art Curious podcast now for a little over five years, so it's uh, it's been quite a journey. Yeah, we may talk about that a little bit, but a quick two-part question. One, did you invent a new word? Uh, and two, is Art Curious one word or two? <laughs> That's such a good question. <laughs> it is. I think I put it as one word, but it is definitely confusing. I think in retrospect, uh, I should have made it two words because sometimes it can be hard to even find on Apple Podcasts if you separate art and curious. So one word officially. <laughs> I, I, I did that too. It's always a learning experience. I named this Charlotte Readers Podcast as the formal name, not realizing that you don't need to put podcast in the name itself. Totally. Jesus. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, we learn from these mistakes. So. Exactly. All right. Another quick question. Your website says you are you are the curator of modern and contemporary art at the North Carolina Museum of Art in Raleigh, North Carolina. But your bio, you sent me, says you are the former curator. Is this like one of your mysteries you talk about in the art world? Is she or isn't she part of the art museum? I like to keep you guessing. Um, right. No, that's just a great reminder that I need to update my website <laughs> because as of October 1st, I um, very, very happily, um, but also, you know, quite bittersweetly left the Museum of Art after 13 years there as a curator uh, because I could do Art Curious in all its forms full time. So this is still a fresh endeavor in some ways, but the art museum is just home to me. And I have not been a stranger since leaving. I've been there multiple times. I've seen the exhibitions. So it will always be a place I return to. Uh, we've solved that mystery. Uh, one down, uh, many to go here on the podcast <laughs> today. Uh, but actually, uh, this book, Art Curious, started out as a podcast. And uh, while you were working as the curator, um, and how did you fall into that? Was this, did somebody dare you to do a podcast or was this an idea that you came up with or how'd that go? It was an idea that was more of like a, a brainwave. I think it was something that in retrospect, again, not thinking through it probably as clearly as I should have. Um, but yeah, what happened was I was on a business trip for the North Carolina Museum of Art. I was visiting an artist in France and I have a young son at home and my husband's here. So anytime I get to travel, I'm towing two people at least behind me who normally don't want to spend all of their time in an art museum. So on this business trip, I thought, oh, this will be great. I'll have a couple of days to spend. I get to go to as many museums as I want. It'll be great to go to the Louvre again. I haven't been there in over a decade, and I can see the Mona Lisa. And the first thing that I think of anytime I hear or think about the Mona Lisa is this story that my art history professor told me in college, where she was talking about what's important about this painting and why it's so famous. And she paused for just about a second, and she said, it's no big deal if you never see this painting in person because the painting that you see at the Louvre is fake. And I remember being <laughs> stunned. It just seemed like such a very weird statement and a little bit of, you know, maybe a conspiracy theory. And I never really asked her about it, but that story just stuck with me just because it's so bizarre. And so I was sitting on the airplane going to France 
and that story popped in my head and I thought there's got to be something to this. So I started reading up on the fact that the work was stolen at least one time, very famously in 1911 and possibly again during World War II. And one of the stories is that it was stolen by a potential art forger and uh, a, his partner. And so the thought that my professor, I think, held very dearly was that if you did indeed make forgeries of the Mona Lisa and you returned one or one was found and returned to the museum, then why wouldn't it be one of those forgeries instead of one of the real ones? The more I started reading, the more I thought, this is insane. I've never heard these stories. I've never learned about this. And I'm somebody who makes a living in the arts. And so I thought, man, I really want to tell this story. And I love podcasts. So I thought it just sounded like a fun and easy way to get the story out. It was really that simple and quick, that decision. Yeah. And I love that story in, in your book. Uh, I was gravitated toward it. I even brought it up the other night uh, to, to some uh, people who I know who traveled to France a lot. And I said, did you know that the Mona Lisa was stolen? And they looked at me like I was crazy. And uh, uh, I, my own experience, we took our family to, to France uh, one time. Just We went through the museum and I saw this congregate of people just in a large group surrounding what I couldn't see because it looked so small. It looked like a postage stamp on the wall. And I'm thinking, this is the magnificent Mona Lisa, this little thing on the wall, you know, that uh, you can't hardly even get up to. But the main thing about that story that really attracted me was what you said in the book about how the curators at the Louvre don't let outsiders come in to inspect closely the Mona Lisa. And right there, you had me. There's a conspiracy going on. <laughs> Right. I mean, it's. I, I feel like I am very uh, skeptical in life in general. I'm not a big believer in aliens, although I can be proved wrong. And I, I love when people come to me with good stories to brighten, you know, and enlighten my mind. But it's hard for me not to come up with all of these different excuses as to why we can't really tell for sure. You talked about, A, the piece is so small. B, there's so many people always standing in the middle of the gallery. It's almost impossible for us as viewers to get close up. And even art experts outside of the Louvre, they aren't given permission. And I think the excuses normally that, you know, this is the crown jewel of the Louvre. It's the most famous work of art in the world. Of course, they're going to protect it within every inch of its life. But there's also that flip side of, is there something more besides that? It's not just that it's, um, you know, it's not that it's just invaluable. Maybe there's some other reason why they're keeping us away. Yeah, it's a wonderful story. And so we're going to dive into some more stories during the podcast here today. But uh, I want to talk a little bit about you and how you, how you made it here uh, to where you are now. Um, we talked about the podcast, which has gotten a lot of great reviews, um, and you've got a big group of people supporting you and working with you, which uh, is great as a podcaster. But what I learned when I read the first few chapters of your book, Jennifer, is that something our listeners might be interested in hearing about is this. You were at one time bored with art. I mean, you fell into the camp joking with your father one day on an outing that your mom orchestrated to a Claude Monet exhibit of being the person who grumbled when looking at a painting like that. What the heck is that supposed to be? <laughs> so, you know, I fall into that camp too a little bit when it comes mm -hmm. to contemporary modern artists. Like, okay, if you work a little bit harder, maybe you'll become a real painter, you know, kind of thing. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> you know? So let's talk a little bit about how you went from being a person who could care less about art to being a person who loves art so much you create a podcast 
and you write a book about it. Yeah, it's very, very surprising even for me. I always joke with people that if you had sat me down when I was 5, 10, 15 years old and said, you're going to be an art curator when you grow up and art's going to be, you know, the center of your career for for decades, I definitely would have thought that they were kidding um, at the best case scenario. Um, yeah, this was never my plan. I was the kid that really loved science and I wanted to be a paleontologist all the way until I was probably almost about 20. And when I started college, after pretty much avoiding art and having a series of terrible art teachers, especially as a uh, young, young kid who made me feel like art was something really hard and something that I could not study hard hard enough or practice hard enough to do, I really just had no interest in it whatsoever. But my very first semester in college, I was trying to get a lot of those uh, graduation requirements graduation requirements out of hand as quickly as possible. And I needed to get one of those pesky humanities requirements done. And everything I wanted to do, you know, writing classes, music classes, anything that I was interested in, those all of those courses were totally booked up. And so I had really just a lack of options of things that I thought I could apply for. And after really unsuccessfully trying for probably about five or six courses to register, I finally decided to go to a course counselor who sat me down and very calmly said, this happens all the time. We're going to find you a class. Stop worrying. And she opened a physical course catalog. And when I tell audiences about this, I always say, you know, it was really this giant book. It was like a, a phone book. And then I have to explain to young younger audiences. Well, a phone book was this book that had all the numbers <laughs> in it for every business and friendly. Uh, so I often get those blank looks for, I think, the under 20, 25 <laughs> crowd. But it was this giant tome that had every course that was being offered that year at the university. And she started at the beginning with the letter A and very quickly stopped and just looked up at me and said, oh, art history everyone takes art history. Let's just see if there's still room in this basic art history 101 introductory course. Of course there was. And without me even saying, oh, that's a great backup option. What else is there? She went and just went ahead and registered me and said, oh, great. We're all done here. We found you the course. And I think I was pretty shocked because I was not happy. Um, I didn't want to take this class. I wanted to continue looking, but I felt like I was sort of swept away from her office. And so I went in kicking and screaming to Art History 101 to learn about ancient art all the way until the late medieval period. And I was going to be completely bored. That That's an amazing story that you're your life and your career is determined by the <laughs> by turning to the section A in the catalog. I what know. if she had turned to Z? I mean, exactly. who knows? Exactly. Maybe I'd be a zoology major <laughs> now, a zookeeper. <laughs> exactly. That, that would be great. Well, you mentioned uh, the structure, and I think you talked in your book about how you were kind of turned away from art in, in elementary school because you had to draw the perfect circle, yes. and that's all that the art teacher wanted you to do. It, it brought back memories of when my daughter was in elementary school and really came home not enjoying, you know, the art class because everything had to be perfect. There wasn't that sort of freedom to draw outside the lines. Yes. And of course, in contemporary art, they not only draw outside the lines, they dump paint on the 
canvas, right? <laughs> it's true. It's true. Now, I think that's one of the things that's so great about so many art teachers now is that it's a lot more about the process and just doing and trying something new than it is about the final result looking exactly like the teacher does. So, but I agree that was not the case for me at all. Everything had to be just so. And if there was any work outside the lines, it was considered some sort of failure. Yeah. Well, you know, your your trajectory here is is really kind of a perfect example of uh, how the liberal arts can drive someone into not only a, a fun, but a lucrative career. Um, you have a little scene, though, in your book where you're talking about telling your fear of telling the parentals, which is what you called your parents, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> about you changing your major from a science major to an art history major, because as we all know, uh, the parentals aren't many much different from yours and mine and probably us too. We want our kids to succeed. We want them to have a, a, a career and we only can think about so many kinds of careers. How'd that conversation go? strangely, extremely easily. I was totally shocked. As you said, I was kind of prepared for the worst. But my parents uh, have always been extremely supportive of me. And I think they knew pretty quickly that if I was going to make a decision, it wasn't going to be one made in haste and that I had some sort of sense of where I wanted to go with it. And so I think they were rather relieved. But I agree in that they were probably surprised at the outset because it's not your traditional career path. It's not your assumed college major for most people. It wasn't something that had that very straight, understandable line. Uh, so I think it was a surprise at the very outset. Yeah, but you, uh, you know, you started this podcast 2016. It was named one of the best podcasts by O, the Open Magazine and PC Magazine. And uh, you did all that because uh, your advisor turn to the A's. It's true. I often think, you know, I, I wish I had any sense of who that woman was, but I also say little prayers all the time. You know, thank you, random lady, for <laughs> setting me on this path because it, it is quite random and I'm so thankful for it. Yeah, we're going to have a few readings in just a minute. Before we do, um, I'd like to talk just a little bit about the structure of the book. You've got three sections. You give us, uh, after the introduction, you give us a section called The Unexpected then you have a section called the slightly odd, and then a section called the strangely wonderful. And what I also like about this book is you have these little vignettes, and you're going to read a couple of those in just a minute in each chapter to maybe highlight a story related to a deeper topic that you're examining, like, you know, when you're doing the Mona Lisa conspiracy thing, you have a couple of other art heist uh, stuff in there. And I love that because I love art heist movies and books and that kind of thing. My question, though, is, you know, this is a pretty thick book and you got this podcast. How did you decide what to include and what not to include and what to dive deeper on? Because I'm sure there's probably more that you've learned than you put in this book. Mm, yes, absolutely. I think I began with the sensation that I knew really early on I wanted to be this book. Uh, I wanted it to be for somebody who was maybe brand new to the world of art and art history and be of interest to somebody who already knew a lot of the basics or even was somebody really immersed in the art world. So I thought that we could do a mixture of big names in art history. So Claude Monet, Vincent Van Gogh, Andy Warhol, and then introduce some lesser known names and stories. So I talk about a woman called Elsa von Freitag Loringhoven, who may or may not have had a part in making Marcel Duchamp's famous 
uh, artwork called Fountain, which was really just an upturned urinal that really was one of the most shocking things in modern art in the 20th century. And also talking about some women who were part of the spiritualist movement at the late 19th, early 20th century, uh, one of whom is now a huge name in art history. Her name is Hilma Off Clint, but she only really became a big name in art of, as of a few years ago because the Guggenheim had a large scale show of her work. But even then in that same chapter, I introduced myself as much as my readers to a woman named Georgiana Houghton, who was a British painter. And both of those women were very aware or they very much believed that their artwork was essentially coming through this mediumistic practice so that they were not artists themselves, but they were the mediums for other artists who were working through them or for angels or spirits of some sort who made them create these works of art. So I wanted to have that balance. Uh, really, when it came to choosing the exact stories as well, I also wanted to give some that I had covered in the podcast, some of the big ones, like the Mona Lisa one, like the Van Gogh story. But one of the great things was that I had a fantastic editor to work with at Penguin Books. And she said, you know what, we want to make sure that we give people a reason to buy the books. So we want to make sure that, you know, two thirds of it is new material. So that was also the other great place to start was then I I was able to have part of the book based on the podcast and the other stuff was all fresh. And the great thing is you can use all this newfound research uh, for your book to put in your podcast. <laughs> I try not to double dip too much, but I have <laughs> used some of those, you know, cast out stories or things right. that I learned along the way that didn't end up in the book. They, they do play into future episodes for sure. That's great. Well, look, um, we're going to have you read a little bit now uh, from the book, These couple of these vignettes. We're going to dive into uh, when art is mistaken for trash uh, first, which I thought was just a very interesting <laughs> title to begin with. So uh, let's start with that one. And uh, then we, we got a couple more after that. So anytime you're ready, take it away. You got it. This vignette is called Whoops, When Art is Mistaken for Trash. Since the birth of the ready-made in the early 20th century, the line between art and not art has gotten blurry, to say the least. In the past two decades, though, the distinction between the two has been so minuscule in several cases that actual works of art have been thrown into the trash, like actual garbage. An art installation of empty champagne bottles and confetti was swept away and discarded at the Museon Bozen in Bolzano, Italy, by an overzealous cleaner in 2014. In 2018, Swiss artist Carol May's Unhappy Meal, a sculpture that parrots the iconic McDonald's kids' meal box with a frown swapped in for its usual smile, was tossed out at a Hong Kong art fair. And even the VIPs aren't immune— in 2001, Damien Hirst, one of the enfants terribles of contemporary art, created an installation at a London gallery that contained, in part, beer bottles, ashtrays, half-drunk cups of coffee, and newspaper. You can probably guess where it ended up. Most infamous, though, was one woman's reaction to British artist Tracy Emmons' controversial creation, My Bed, from 1998 in a private collection and now on long-term loan to Tate Britain, London. In 1999, Emmons exhibited her actual unmade bed surrounding by extremely personal detritus, stained sheets, condom wrappers, bottles of vodka, a pregnancy test, and used tissues. This concept so incensed one woman that she drove 200 miles to clean it up, though she was quickly restrained by security guards. 
When asked why she intended to disrupt Emin's artwork, the woman replied, I thought I would clean up this woman's life a bit. She will never get a boyfriend unless she tidies herself up. <laughs> well, you know, it might beg the question, what was wrong with throwing out some of this stuff, right? <laughs> right. I know it's true. <laughs> it's all within the eye of the beholder. <laughs> exactly. All in the eye of the, and that's what, uh, you know, the contemporary art is. But I do find it uh, interesting that you can create uh, something like that and, and it becomes on loan to different you know, museums, you know, an old unmade bed is being transported from museum to museum. I know. And I think it's one of the things that is both strange and also wonderful about the contemporary art world is that you don't necessarily have to go through all the rigmarole of a fancy art school, art education, of going through an art gallery. You know, social media has definitely changed things. And then there's also the fact that art doesn't necessarily always have to be oil paint or clay or porcelain anymore. You can create art out of anything. So in that way, the barrier for people to become artists today is far lower in some cases. Well, maybe I've got a chance. You, know, I know. <laughs> you can do it. <laughs> All right. So that, that was an interesting little vignette. We've got another one here. I talked earlier about how I was drawn to uh, the movies that involve art heist. You know, I'm thinking the Thomas Crown Affair, for example, and others that uh, you know fall into that uh, genre when you have the Mona Lisa and you're discussing that in your book, you drop in this vignette about the most infamous art theft in history. And there was actually, I think, I don't know if it was on Netflix or Amazon. I saw a documentary on this one time and was fascinated by it. So I thought, okay, I'm going to ask Jennifer to read this one as well. Yes. So this is about the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in 1990. In 1990, thieves unknown broke into Boston's famed Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum and made off with 13 works of art, including rare works by Rembrandt Van Rijn and Johannes Vermeer, with a combined value of more than $500 million. The kicker. 30 years later, this case, the most infamous art theft in modern history, is still unsolved. Though many suspects have been named over the years, notorious mobster James Whitey Bulger, a corrupt security guard performing an inside job, a California screenwriter with a shady past. The question of the identity of the perpetrators is less important than the real question. Will the 13 artworks ever be seen again? The folks at the ISGM are hopeful that their long-lost treasures will come home, so much so that they doubled their reward in 2017 from $5 million to $10 million. And the good news is that cold hard facts do support them. Approximately 80% of stolen art is eventually returned, but that positivity is tempered by concerns about the condition of these works. Even if they're found, what if they're damaged or practically destroyed? Even worse, what if they have been lost over these past few decades? It's terrifying to consider, but all we can do now is hope for a safe return and keep our eyes wide open for any clues to their current location. Yeah, Jennifer, what was interesting about this the documentary I saw is that when you walked into one of the rooms uh, that was segregated for with these different paintings on the walls, they just cut them out of the frames yes, and, and took them, which raised the question of, did they damage them? But then they also left 
other pieces of art that might have been more valuable than some of the ones that they stole. So it's really kind of confusing what was going on here. Yes, exactly. I think one of the things that's always so curious to me is I think it's an eagle finial. It's a finial of some sort that's very small that they grabbed. And that felt so random to me. You wonder if it was a last minute snap decision, if it had some personal meaning to one of the thieves. You know, there's so many questions and it is such a fascinating story. And I think the fact that you still can see the frames where the paintings were cut from on display that was part of Isabella Stewart Gardner's will in that nothing should leave her house. So that includes the frame for these works that unfortunately have left. And so that's such an interesting visual reminder that keeps the story of this theft alive. You know, people think about it every day, every time they visit the museum. So you go in the museum now, you see the actual frame without the art in it? Yes. Exactly. Oh, that's kind of that's kind of spooky. It is, and I have to say, you know, as as much as anything else, it makes for such great pictures. So if you're taking a photo for a photo album or Instagram or anything, I mean, it's it's pretty arresting to see. A real conspiracy theorist would say they did that on purpose so they could get people to come to the museum to see what it was all about. <laughs> totally, I know. <laughs> There's no lack of conspiracy theories, even in the art world, for sure. All right. Well, speaking of uh, conspiracy theories, this next one uh, attracted my attention because of the title, Wait, Is That a UFO? <laughs> uh, so we'll find out more about this, but uh, anytime you're ready. Okay. Perhaps inspired by too many episodes of Ancient Aliens on the History Channel, believers and art aficionados alike are claiming evidence of extraterrestrial sightings in works of art throughout the ages, with a particular onslaught of space explorers located in medieval and early Renaissance Christian paintings. Led by computer scientist and ufologist, yes, that's a real word, Jacques Vallée, believers have identified hundreds of works of art that purportedly document the historical presence of alien life. A circular cloud bank, similar to a flying saucer, projects a laser-like beam to Earth in Carlo Crivelli's The Annunciation with St. Emidius, which is from 1486 and in the National Gallery, London. A blue and gold vessel, a spaceship, floats near a shepherd who shields his eyes from its powerful rays in The Virgin and Child with St. John, artist debated 15th century Palazzo Vecchio Florence. This last painting is so popular with UFO fans that it is graced with the unofficial alternate title of Madonna of the UFO. And these are only the tip of the metaphorical art iceberg, with sightings in art reported in Chinese scrolls, Stone Age Iraqi sculptures, French coins, and far beyond. What gives? As much as I'd like to believe, my inner Dana Scully is not convinced. Typically, these paintings represent otherworldly religious figures, angels, spirits, ghosts, gods, goddesses. And how best to visualize these mystical characters than to present them zooming through with the sky on a star? These figures look strange precisely because they are considered beyond human understanding. But will that deter the ufologists? Probably not, because art interpretation, like beauty, is in the eye of the beholder. <laughs> I love that 
people have found UFOs and these ancient works of art. It just it just shows they're actually paying attention, right? You know what? I love that idea. It's this sense that something is gravitating, uh, making you gravitate toward it and look closely. And I, you know, as much as I said, and I gave the description of how I believe that it's meant to represent a, a spirit or a god or an angel, I love that everybody can have a different opinion and a different idea of an artwork's interpretation. And I firmly believe that all artworks can and maybe should be enjoyed with many different interpretations. I don't believe that a work of art means just one thing. Maybe it did to the artist who made it. Maybe it means something different to the curator or an educator. It certainly probably means something different to a young child or, uh, you know, an adult with no art background. And that's something that I really want to push for for people. I want everybody to be able to see what they want to see and enjoy a work of art however they want. So if that involves checking it out for UFOs, that's okay by me. Yeah, I probably wouldn't do well interviewing someone who'd done a sort of an abstract work of art because I'd want to ask them, what, what is it? What does that mean? What, 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 yeah. And they'll say, it's whatever you want it to mean, right? <laughs> I know. I know. It can be <laughs> difficult for sure. I mean, being someone who's worked with contemporary artists for, you know, one and a half decades, I guess now, uh, it's always really interesting because some artists are very, very stern in their saying, this is the only way you can understand my sculpture. This is the only way I want you to read my painting. Whereas others say, you know, I was thinking about my grandpa when I painted this portrait, but it also reminds my best friend about a fall day. You know, everybody has these different things that they bring to it. And um, I just want people to look. That's my number one thing. Yeah. And of course, you know, there's the UFO that they buried in the top right hand corner, too. Of course. Always. Yeah. <laughs> always look and, deeper. And this raised the question. You have a great story in here. We won't go into it in detail, but, you know, buy the book and read it. But uh, you talk about how Patricia Cornwell went on this you know, sort of long-term hunt analysis research to try to f solve the mystery of who is Jack the Ripper. Mm -hmm. And she came down believing that it was a painter yes. because of some of the things that the painter painted. Again, we're looking at these paintings. I don't know that this is going to be a, a forensic way for Columbo to solve the next uh, crime necessarily, but <laughs> she, she, in fact, kind of tries to do that, right? In, in, in determining who, who was the real Jack the Ripper. Yeah. And I, I like that she comes to it from as much of a scientific perspective as she can and that she tries to hire out people to do DNA analysis and, and uh, you know, handwriting analysis and looking at letters that are potentially known to have been from Jack the Ripper as opposed to forgeries or other fake letters and comparing them with this particular painter named Walter Sickert, who was rather famous British painter. And she's trying to find these connections. But I feel like it's very difficult. It's hard for me to believe as much as I wish we could know. Um, it's really hard for me to know whether or not to believe her because so many of the things that she points to, they're, they're such weak links in many ways and such circumstantial evidence that I also always think that if we're putting her up as someone who is speaking in court, trying to convince me as part of the jury, whether Walter Sickert was actually Jack the Ripper, I would have to say not guilty just because there's nothing concrete and serious. It again is all just about what you want to see as the viewer and what you're reading into it. Yeah, well, just like the art, right? Looking at the art and trying to figure out uh, what it is and what you read into it. All right, well, let, me, let me tell our listeners here, uh, we're going to jump over in just a minute to Patreon. 
at uh, patreon.com forward slash Charlotte Rears Podcast. We're running a new segment now, uh, 10 minutes of tips about reading and writing. Uh, I'm going to be talking to Jennifer, get some ideas about what she's reading, what she likes to read, and maybe some a little bit to talk about uh, some writing tips, what she did when she went through the writing of this book. Uh, and so join us over there. You can, uh, you know, for the cost of a cup of coffee a month, you can uh, help support the podcast and get some great extra content uh, in the uh, reading and writing world. Jennifer, what is next? Uh, are you going to write a, another art curious book at some point? I hope to. I'm actually in the process of kind of brainstorming and thinking about options right now. I have nothing serious on the agenda, but I would love to write another book. I had so much fun doing this one. And in the meantime, I just finished out the 10th season of Art Curious. I do two seasons a year, and then I will be starting the 11th season in April. So definitely doing a lot of research and writing right now. That's great. Well, keep up the great work with the podcasting and uh, bring us another book because this was really a fascinating read. And as you said, it's uh, it's it's very approachable. I mean, you don't have to love art uh, to start with to read this book to say, hey, I, I might want to learn more about this thing called art. Thank you very much. That was really my hope is that somebody who maybe would never choose to pick up a book about art might look at the back of this one, read the description and say, huh, this is cool. I want to know more. That really was the goal. So I, I appreciate your kind words. Thank you. Yeah. And thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you. I'm so happy to have been here. Thank you so much. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to the written words. You can subscribe to this podcast for free at Apple Podcast, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and most any podcast platform you like to listen to your podcast on. If you like what we're doing, please consider leaving a short written review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Because when you do, our authors' voices travel much farther and wider in podcast land. And if you're inclined to help us help authors give voice to the written words, and you'd like some member-only content cultivated by our authors and me as our thanks, please consider becoming a member supporter. You can find out how to become a member supporter and more about today's show and all previous episodes at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. For more information, go to queencitypodcastnetwork.com.